This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hello, this is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Welcome to our AWS podcast series. We always want to remind you to go to wildmedu.org to look at the programs and the courses that you can study to learn about wilderness medicine and be safe in the backcountry. Are you ready to test your knowledge again? We have a couple of questions for you just to see if you know your knowledge of uh, wilderness medicine. Uh, this uh, We like tests and quizzes because they let us know where we're weak and where we need to learn. Uh, one of the big issues with wilderness medicine is uh, that it focuses so much just on rescue medicine and uh, uh, splints and neck braces and things, which, while important, is, uh, is something that is not often going to be seen. Mostly the, the issues of wilderness medicine should be the most common things and most common principles. So quizzes are really good at testing us on those. So if you're ready, we're going to do uh, start our uh, very uh, uh, the second uh, quiz in this series of uh, what uh, you know about uh, your your knowledge in uh, backcountry medicine. So we're going to start uh, with a question uh, uh, about where is um, uh, certain diseases found. We've often felt that uh, as we do our backcountry. Uh, trips that when you go to a place, you really need to know the, some of the diseases uh, and issues that are going to be found there because those are the ones you're more likely going to be treated. So uh, let's let's start with um, a disease that is common in some areas. In fact, it's insanely common, but is rarely seen in others. And we're going to focus our attention now mostly on the United States of America because the United States has a lot of tick-borne diseases. So let's look at the, one of the uh, a common tick-borne disease in the United States. It's called Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. So the first question is, where is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever most likely to be seen? A, uh, in the eastern United States, near Tennessee, North and South Carolina. B, the Rocky Mountain uh, area in the western United States. And C, uh, the Alps near Chamonix, uh, Mount Blanc. So I'll let give you a second to think about that. A, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina. B, the Rocky Mountain, Western United States. And uh, C, in the uh, Alps uh, near Chamonix, Mount Blanc. Well, the answer to that question is A, uh, in the eastern United States, in the area of the south-central states of South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, standing westward a little bit, uh, it is most likely to be seen. In fact, that it's common there. Uh, due to interstate travel and international tra- travel, it can be seen anywhere in the United States, and actually we're seeing it uh, all over the world, actually. So you can't just say it's there, but uh, uh, we've seen it now in Mexico, Canada, Central America, and South America, but it's not endemic in these areas, and it is not found in Europe. There have been no cases that are reported recently of, of, of a primary uh, um, uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But if you come to the United States and you go to the eastern states, especially those eastern central states, and your trek goes up into the Appalachians or onto the plateaus over there, 
Rocky Mountain spotted fever is likely going uh, to be seen. Uh, it is important to know where outdoor diseases are located when venturing into the outdoors. Uh, so make sure you do that. You can get on a whole number of websites that uh, help you uh, to find those. Make sure you, you know those things before you go out. Okay, in the next case, we're going to call this a case of red toes. A 24-year-old male is in an inflatable kayak on a creek in the summer months uh, uh, in a drier area, and it hasn't been raining for a while. At the end of the second day, he has very sore toes. They are red and uh, very itchy and stinging pain. They look like, uh, and some of the toes, they look like they have little blisters. He comes to you for advice. Uh, what do you think this is? Uh, what would be the diagnosis and what would be the treatment of red toes on a summer day, someone in an inflatable kayak on a, a river? <clears throat> well, uh, this is, uh, uh, these are chilblains. Uh, in some areas, they call them perneal. Uh, chilblains are small, itchy swelling on the skin that occurs through a reaction to cold temperatures. Uh, chilblains are very common, but few people know about them. In the United Kingdom, they know in the winter months, people get chilblains on their cheeks and their nose and their ears. But chilblains uh, are a reaction to cold and usually relate to moisture because the moisture, uh, uh, like water, helps uh, uh, take uh, helps with that reaction. So while they don't cause uh, uh, permanent damage, they do cause problems. So uh, the big way to treat chilblains is to prevent further exposure if possible. Remove wet, constrictive clothing, wash and dry regularly and gently. Don't scratch them. Elevate and cover with loose, warm clothing, and they'll go away. And even though they're irritating and itching, they rarely cause permanent uh, uh, damage. Okay, we'll get uh, uh, another case. Uh, uh, we'll go with, um, uh, we'll call it a painful foot. Um, so you're approached after a long day on a summer river trip. A 35-year-old male boatman has very, very painful feet. And you remove his shoes and you notice mottled uh, skin uh, and it is tender. Uh, it is not open, it is not ulcerating, uh, but uh, they have been uh, wet all day. Uh, what is the diagnosis and what is the treatment? In a common uh, long day on a summer river trip, a 35-year-old male with otherwise no medical problems. Well, uh, this is called uh, immersion foot. Some people call it trench foot. Uh, this is a non-freezing injury to the foot. It develops when feet are exposed to moisture and cold for uh, prolonged periods. It, it can be shorter, but usually it's like uh, 8, 9, 10, 12 hours. Cold and moisture softens the skin, causing tissue loss, and then predisposes that to infection. So the word infection is a scary word for us because infection can kill us. So trench foot or immersion foot can lead to an infection which can become life-threatening. So this, while looking, it seems mild, and it, and it is in that sense that uh, your foot's been wet on a warm day or a cool day. It just has to have moisture, and you get immersion foot, but now that can, the skin is, uh, can break open and get infected. The treatment for immersion foot is to prevent further exposure. This may be hard if you're on a river trip, and the, the person is a guide and has to paddle, but you've got to remove wet clothing, especially if it's constrictive, Wash and dry the injury gently to get rid of bacteria and dirt that can cause an infection. Elevate and rewarm if there's blisters 
uh, try not to pop them if you don't have to, and allow the uh, or allow the victim to walk on the injury until it starts to heal. Now, this is a common river running, uh, river rafting, or kayaking uh, injury, or someone who's out hiking and has to go in the water a lot. Trench foot can recover very quickly, but if you don't let that dry out, uh, then they can become a problem. Uh, patients who have hyperhidrosis or sweat a lot. Uh, who, you know, people who just sweat a lot in their shoes can get trench foot. So it's really just this abnormal exposure to moisture, and uh, the and the answer is dryness. So that's something that you that you need uh, to walk, uh, to watch for. So to watch for trench foot. Um, let's do another one. Uh, this is a, a, a in freezing uh, area, freezing foot. Uh, a twenty-three-year-old has uh, was lost in the mountains in the wintertime. Uh, uh, in her, as she walked out, her feet pushed through snow and fell into a river beneath the snow. She was able to climb out of that. She changed her clothes except for her boots because she had nothing else. She took Advil and walked out all day. She had an unaffected companion that helped her. She arrived home that night, and uh, now she has very, very painful and uh, uh, dark reddish toes. What is the immediate treatment for this condition? What is the diagnosis? So uh, uh, while you, you have to picture this in your mind, if you don't know the answer, uh, this is what? And if you're thinking uh, frostbite, you're correct. It is very, very painful, especially as you warm it up. And so warming up frostbite is, the, is what we really want to know. So I'll ask you now, what is the treatment? For, uh, uh, for frostbite. Uh, the, the toes are dark, uh, red, bluish, painful, been in the snow and water all day. So you diagnose frostbite and what is the treatment now? They're in, at their, at inside now. They're not going to go back out and refreeze it. And so the treatment immediately is to um, uh, immediate warming in uh, rapid warming, very rapid warming in in jacuzzi temperature water that, you know, uh, uh, somewhere around 38, 39 degrees centigrade, 100 degree Fahrenheit. Uh, if you if you put it by the fire, let it warm up slowly, that'll increase pr productions of prostaglandins and thromboxanes, which are, uh, are bad for that. It will cause clotting and worsen the frostbite. So if you answered rapid rewarming with no chance of refreezing, that is it. So put it in water. It's going to be painful, but you want it 37 to 39 degrees centigrade, and that's 99 to 101, 102 degree Fahrenheit, and put it in there until the skin re regains its pliability and returns to normal color. And it will be painful, but that pain is not causing damage. That pain is a good thing, and then you need to go get help and uh, uh, take, that, take the person into help so that, uh, you know, if, it ha if you have to have surgery or things that might happen to that one. And frostbite uh, is one of the more common things just simply because uh, people know they're, they're in snow and ice and they've uh, gotten wet. So you're getting now, the next question is going to involve uh, sun, uh, sunscreens. You're getting ready to start a hike with a friend and they, uh, your friend asks you about sunscreens. What sunscreen should you put on? He asks, what sunscreens to use if sunscreens prevent you want them to prevent skin cancer. Uh, and you're going to hike to altitude to about 12,000 uh, feet or so. 
and so the only uh, what is the answer to that question? What sunscreens should uh, you uh, should you use? And uh, the answer to that is uh, it doesn't matter what brand name, but you need to use the new broad spectrum sunscreens. And very briefly, uh, broad spectrum uh, spectrum sunscreens screen out UVA and UVB, and that becomes the uh, important answer to that question. So not uh, to understand ultraviolet light, not all ultraviolet light gets through the skin. UVC uh, does not, but UVA and UVB does, and UVA will penetrate deeper into the skin. There are two kinds of sunscreens. There's the physical sunscreens and the chemical sunscreens. The physical sunscreens are placed on the top of the skin. Chemical sunscreens are absorbed into the skin. Both physical and chemical sunscreens mostly work by absorbing ultraviolet radiation and converting it to heat. That's how they work. Both types of sunscreens have electrons that can be excited higher energy levels, and when they fall back down, they turn back into heat. Physical sunscreens can scatter a small amount of ultraviolet radiation back into the atmosphere. So some of the common compounds of chemical sunscreens uh, are not good uh, as healthy for the body, uh, and so they're, they're starting to be removed from the chemical sunscreens. Uh, avobenzone is the one that is used most commonly in chemical sunscreen. Uh, this is used for UVA filtration and uh, is very effective at that. Um, uh, there are others that are being removed that aren't as good for the thyroid and uh, the, like some, maybe even the kidneys. Uh, we often think about um, sun protection factor, but the other, uh, for rating sunscreens, but the, the other one which uh, deals with UVA radiation is called the persistent pigment darkening method. And uh, this is UVA radiation, uh, test UVA radiation to see how quickly skin will uh, change color or tan. Um, but this is uh, for uh, UVA. So the SPF measures UVB. Uh, the um, uh, PPD method uh, looks at UVA. So it becomes important to uh, have have both. You need to protect against UVA and UVB. Sun protection factor really looks at electrons. Uh, if a hundred, I mean, at photons. If a hundred photons hits your skin, and you and you put on sun protection factor of 15, that'll give you 93% protection. And then seven photons will enter the skin. If you have an SPF of uh, sunscreen uh, uh, 30, then 97% protection, only three photons enter skin. But this is for uh, UVB. So the answer to this is you need, you need both. Um, one of the problems with sunscreen is that uh, people confuse the higher rated SPF of how long sunscreen lasts on the skin. You need to know that that is not the case. It, they'll wash off just as quickly. So what we need is higher SPF and zinc oxide, which, uh, which when reapplied, every, you have to reapply it every couple of hours, just like anything, and that will protect your skin. So remember, you need broad-spectrum coverage, which covers UVA and UVB, and so uh, that becomes very, very important. And you need to put it on your skin frequently. So uh, broad-spectrum sunscreens include combinations of ingredients to protect from both types of rays, that is UVA and UVC, and that means you're going to have to use combinations of zinc oxide 
and the other chemical sunscreens that will protect it. And so that answers that question. What sunscreen should I use? Broad spectrum sunscreens is the answer. And with that, this ends this quiz on wilderness medicine. And as always, we say thank you for listening. Thank you.